Chapter Fifteen of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Quote, Wilde was a doughty and assiduous trencherman. I would have backed him to eat the head off a brewer's drayman three times a day, and his capacity for whisky and soda knew no bounds. Unquote. Thus, Lord Alfred Douglas. If this were true, we might find it in another resemblance to the amazing emperor. Quote, to food and drink, the emperor was as much addicted as the traditional city alderman, though his imagination certainly surpassed that of the retired tradesman, at least in quality and design. Lampridius states that no feast cost Elagabalus less than one hundred thousand sesterces, and often reached the stupendous figure of three hundred thousand sesterces, tout compris. Unquote. I cannot say, however, that I ever noticed any such defect as gourmandise in Oscar Wilde, nor, as I have said, any inclination either to alcoholic excess. It is, however, certain that after he left prison and was seeking, in a real and palpable hell, any artificial paradise that he could find, he did indulge unconscionably in alcohol, and Douglas's statement that during the last years in Paris he was often seen on the verge of intoxication is confirmed by other witnesses. At the time, however, when I first made his acquaintance, and right down till a year or two before he died, he appeared to me abstemious rather than self-indulgent, and one reason for this was that he was exceedingly sensitive about his tendency towards corpulence, and did all he could to keep his figure the figure of youth. I remember that once I offended him quite innocently by asking him if he could explain the use or derivation of the word habit, in such an expression as a man of a full habit. He flared up. "'What do you mean by that question, Robert?' he cried, as though suspecting that I was making an allusion to his embonpoint, when nothing had been further from my mind. I remember also possessing a little note of his, written on blue prison paper, which began, Yes, it is perfectly true, and continued by begging the person to whom the note was addressed, one of the warders in Reading Jail, to convey in writing some message to a fellow prisoner by shoving, the note under the door of his cell. This, yes, it is perfectly true, was in answer to a question which the warder had addressed to him in writing as to the authenticity of an anecdote about him, which had appeared in one of the papers, and related how Oscar Wilde, being at a reception, was talking to some grand dame, when a noble quidnunc came up behind him, slapped him on the back, and exclaimed, Why, Oscar, you are getting fatter and fatter! Without turning around, Oscar Wilde said, Yes, and you are getting ruder and ruder, and quietly continued his conversation with the lady. This note was among various papers which were stolen from me, and though that collection contained some very extraordinary items, it was perhaps the document whose loss I most regret. For amongst other things, in Oscar's use of that word, shoving, I saw the one and only sign that prison environment had weakened his good taste, and soiled his nicety. In the old days he would never have used such a word, he who, considering himself a lord of language, had an extreme fastidiousness of vocabulary. 
i remember that we were once looking over some of wordsworth's sonnets and that oscar came upon a line whose terminal was made to rhyme with love for which the poet had employed the word shove robert robert said oscar what is the meaning of this when i first knew him being careful of his figure he was inclined rather to the practices of mr william banting than to habits of gluttony i have often seen him refuse a dish urged upon him by a persuasive maitre d'hôtel with the remark il faut souffrir pour être beau but if he was never to my knowledge a gourmand i always knew him as a gourmet de primo cartello he had a very extensive knowledge of the art of cookery and as an art la haute cuisine is considered in paris where many most distinguished men of letters have not disdained to employ their pens in its glorification in england it is not so and during one of wilde's trials one of the bewigged gentlemen who may be supposed to have been as familiar with mrs beaton as he was ignorant of the gentle brille savarin who cross-examined him endeavoured to make a point against him with a sarcastically ejaculated what another art when cookery was under discussion he was a master at ordering a delicate repast and surprised me with his maestria who knew him to be of irish descent and hold the irish amongst the very philistines of gastronomy i remember the interest which he took in a series of stories which i was writing for a paper which devoted itself to the pleasures of the table these stories were called romances of the table and the point of each was that in the guise of a tale some recipe should be introduced he was good enough to describe them as ingenious as well as literary and did me the honour of using as a subject of conversation one of the stories which was called the lady of the red roses and which narrated how a fair greek lady encouraged her young admirer to bring her roses and roses not indeed to carpet with their crimson petals the floor of her withdrawing-room but simply because she was very fond of that greek preserve known as rhodosaccharae which is a compote of roses much appreciated in the morayan peninsula i remember nothing about that dejeuner chez bignon at which i first partook of oscar's bread and salt beyond that it was luxurious and expensive though certainly not gargantuan as the wine was served i remarked to oscar that i did not know why people spoke of white wine when the word yellow which designated its colour correctly was a much more pictorial word he immediately adopted the suggestion and from thenceforward never spoke of white wine but of yellow wine the expression occurs in an unfortunate letter that he wrote to one of his friends a letter which was used against him with damning effect at his trial where he tells this friend that he is to him as red and yellow wine the luxuriousness of the repast and the indifference with which he discharged the formidable bill that was presented whilst our coffee was making itself on the table between us confirmed me in my conclusion that he was a man of wealth as a matter of fact he was living on his expectations from the duchess of padua it will be remembered that he was writing this under contract with a certain mr hamilton griffin acting on behalf of mary anderson by this contract he had agreed to write for miss mary anderson a first-class five-act tragedy 
to be completed on or before march first eighteen eighty three the first-class five-act tragedy was to become mary anderson's absolute property the consideration being a payment to him of five thousand dollars of which one thousand dollars was paid down on signing the contract and the balance of which namely four thousand dollars was to be paid on mary anderson's acceptance and approval of the said tragedy so that in those february days when i first met oscar wilde he was in the expectation of receiving sometime in march the sum of eight hundred pounds he was therefore naturally full of the duchess and spoke much about her we dine with the duchess to-night he would sometimes say at the time i did not understand what he meant i well understood the expression to dine with the duke for which the french equivalent is to dance before the buffet an expression familiar to most young men who have practised the art and craft of letters in paris i do not know on what grounds mary anderson rejected the manuscript she may possibly have regretted her bargain and have taken advantage of the fact that the manuscript which was not finished till fifteenth march did not reach her until more than a month after the date stipulated in the agreement it cannot have been on the ground that the work was not a first-class tragedy for such it has now been universally recognised to be i happened to be with oscar wilde in his sitting-room at the hotel de quai voltaire when her cabled decision reached him it was some time towards the end of april not having heard from her and his funds running low he had that morning cable to her in california begging her for an answer we were sitting smoking when the waiter brought in une dépêche pour monsieur wilde opened it and read the disappointing news without giving the slightest sign of chagrin or annoyance he tore a tiny strip off the blue form rolled it up into a pellet and put it into his mouth then he passed the cable over to me and said robert this is very tedious after that he never referred again to his disappointment i admired his sang-froid greatly at the time though i did not know then that this refusal of his work meant the loss to him of a large sum of money on which he had absolutely counted a tremendous setback in his career as a dramatist and worse still the obligation to give up his elegant existence in paris and to return to london and the drudgery of the provincial lecture platform but as i say he showed no disappointment at all and a minute or two later was chatting gaily on something as remote from the duchess of padua as california is from the quai voltaire we were to dine together that night and when the time came for us to go out he said we shan't be able to dine with the duchess to-night it is rather a case of duke humphrey but what do you say to a choucroutagani at zimmer's i insisted however that sauerkraut and sausages were not proper food for a poet and begged him to come with me as my guest for once in a while to a little place on the other side of the water where they don't do you at all badly to which he having consented i led him by devious routes and down a side street and by a side entrance into that very cafe de paris where we had first lunched together it was not until we had got into the cell that opened on to the avenue de l'opera that he recognised the place and then he kept up my little pleasantry quite a nice little place he said 
and all through the meal we continued the joke and pretended that we were dining at some marchand de vin patronized by the cab drivers than which in those days an eating-house of that order could have no better recommendation after dinner we went to the folie bergere for that night's performance at which a journalist friend had sent me a box but after we had occupied the loge a few minutes he suggested that we should leave there are occasions he said on which a loge is a pillory and the fact was that he had been a great deal stared at while he was sitting there since i have realised what mary anderson's refusal meant to him and remember how he took what to many would have been a knock-down blow my admiration for his self-control and his dignity has become great most men would have grumbled men who might have consoled themselves for the loss of eight hundred pounds at a time when they were well-nigh penniless but who would have suffered in their vanity at the rejection of their work and i know that oscar wilde felt that in the duchess of padua he had achieved a masterpiece he never said so of course for contrary to what has been alleged against him he rarely spoke of his work at all and never in boastful terms indeed self-glorification he described as vulgar in the extreme and i have heard him lecture on this subject a youth who was given to boasting but a glance at the title page of the first printed edition of this play privately printed as manuscript of which only four copies are known to exist will show the importance he attached to this tragedy as a work of art in the top left-hand corner of the title page stand the words opus two it was the custom of the great musical composers of such masters as beethoven bach and wagner thus to number their works it is grandiloquent my second opus it classifies the book as a work as an opus by which masterpiece is suggested it implies that the reader will be pleased to know the standing numerically of this particular masterpiece in the cycle of the author's productions it need not be remembered as a first-class tragedy named the duchess of padua it will be sufficient for the public to recall it as oscar wilde's second opus well this second opus had been curtly rejected and was threatened with the oblivion which very nearly enshrouded it for it was not until eighteen ninety one that it was produced in new york by lawrence barrett and that anonymously not as opus the second nor indeed as the duchess of padua but under the title of guido ferranti it enjoyed a succes d'estime and was well received by the critics the new york tribune found that it was the work of a practised writer and a good one and the critic mentioned that he had had the pleasure of reading it several years previously in manuscript when it was called the duchess of padua and knew it to be the work of oscar wilde the piece only ran from monday twenty sixth january till fourteenth february and was performed twenty-one times in all it seems to have brought evil fortune upon lawrence barrett who died a few weeks later when in nineteen o six it was performed in hamburg the text being the authorised german translation of dr max meyerfeld the man who played the principal part went raving mad upon the stage she was not a lucky hostess that duchess of padua shaky oscar wilde and i dined in those early days in paris 
many authors would have grumbled would have voiced their disappointment might have questioned the actress's judgment or taste or possibly her bona fides oscar wilde never said a word indeed to me never spoke of the duchess again the fact is he had a tremendous confidence in himself his motto was quo non ascendam and he believed in its promise he used to speak of his measureless ambition to have a second opus set aside was as nothing to a man whose teeming brain projected a cycle of masterpieces still self-confidence or prepotency his conduct on that occasion as on similar occasions subsequently calls for admiration and shows him a strong man End of chapter 15